humans welcome to bizzlecast episode 17 this is my audio commentary for the film braveheart which won best picture and best director in 1995 i'm gonna do a quick intro and then i'll count us down to the movie so don't start up your dvds or files quite yet braveheart was one of the great all-time medieval epics one of the great all-time films one of my personal favorites and one that i've been wanting to revisit for a while well, I've already released four audio commentaries, um, starting with the Duncan Jones uh, independent science fiction movie Moon, and recently just released all three Lord of the Rings extended edition movies and my audio commentaries for them. I've done a bunch of others that I haven't released yet. Not sure which I'm going to release. Definitely going to release the ones for the Matrix trilogy, which is actually the ones I did first, but have been holding off on. The reason it's taken me this long to do Braveheart, even though it was my favorite movie growing up, and I still love watching it, um, there are a few reasons. One, it seemed a little too obvious in a way. Um, you know, it's so great. It almost doesn't need audio commentary. But more so, I just hadn't watched it in a number of years and was nervous about rewatching it and whether I would still like it, especially given the fact that Mel Gibson is sort of like a caricature at this point, sort of a cartoonish, somewhat offensive and sad person. But I went back and watched it before I decided to do the audio commentary, and it was still so freaking amazing that it was pretty clear to me that I, I would be able to do an audio commentary for it, and I had a great time doing so. And also, Braveheart is on Netflix. I don't know how long it's going to be there. But with the Lord of the Rings movies, especially since I did the extended editions, which some people have, but are hard to get a hold of and are very expensive, you know, I, I knew that not everyone would be able to check those out. But with Braveheart, even without Netflix, a lot of people would have the movie or have access to it. But since it's on Netflix, I figured this was the perfect time to do it. And I'm going to keep this intro short. I did pretty long intros for The Return of the King and the other Lord of the Rings movies. I wanted just jump right into it. This movie's brilliance speaks for itself. As I mentioned, every frame, every shot, every line just works and hits home for me. Even stuff that I didn't realize as a kid was brilliant from an artistic or filmic standpoint really stands out to me now as stood the test of time. All the medieval epic movies I love, from Lord of the Rings to Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, none of these would have been possible without Braveheart. There had been epic movies before, going back to Lawrence of Arabia, but by the mid-90s, even though CGI really hadn't reached the point where it needed to be to do battles the size of the Lord of the Rings battles, or even Kingdom of Heaven, the technology in terms of filming, practical effects, and the designing and execution of practical Practical effects had reached a critical point, and Braveheart really pushed the you know epic medieval genre forward in a way that no other movie had, and and, and continues to do so. So I'm going to jump right into the commentary. I'll give a quick little intro here to getting into the movie. I'm lining up the commentary. Basically, you know, just go to Netflix, and I'm going to count it down. 
and when I count down, I'll say three, two, one, go, and when I say go, you should hit start, and should line up pretty nicely because I, I did the auto commentary along with the Netflix version. So the only thing I will add, which I've been sort of forgetting to mention, is I watch a ton of audio commentaries, both official and unofficial, and for me, I like hearing some ambient sound from the movie track while listening. Not enough to be distracting, but um, sort of the guideline I give is you should be able to hear sort of the music, and when I'm not talking during my short silences, you should just be able to hear the dialogue. Obviously, you should put on the subtitles or the closed captioning as well. You might want to just go silent with the closed captioning, so I leave that to you. So cue up your Netflix to zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds. We're going to count it down. All right, here we go. Ready? Three, two, one, go. All right, <laughs> welcome to Braveheart, people. This movie is amazing, and it came out in 1995. I was a wee lad of 13 years old, and this is absolutely, <laughs> you know, movies like this are just made for kids of that age. And I had it on VHS, I saw it in the theater, watch it over and over and over again for those couple of years of adolescence there. So many things about this movie I love. It's hard to even know where to start. Obviously, it won Best Picture and Best Director for Mel Gibson, his greatest performance ever, one of the greatest directorial jobs ever. And, you know, they start in the Highlands, which is exactly where they should start. Although, as we'll get to, William Wallace was not actually from the Highlands, as far as I can tell. But much of the rebellion uh, did uh, sort of exist and, and uh, come from northern parts of Scotland. You know, I talk in the Lord of the Rings podcast about nature porn, and there is amazing nature porn in Scotland. And when I finally got to visit Scotland in the late 90s with my family, we went up to the Highlands, drove around, hiked around. It really is this amazing. Even though I think they filmed a lot of um, this movie in Ireland. So, this begins the narration, which is by Robert the Bruce, who is very critical to the story and to the actual history. We don't know he's narrating when you first see it. Um, and because of his voice, uh, it's a little uh, understated or modified. It doesn't, you know take you out of it even once you do realize that it is Robert the Bruce. So this takes us right into it. And this particular event may or may not have happened, but Edward the Longshanks, the horrible king of England at this time, did use the nobles and was often tricking them and putting them one against the other to try and claim lordship over Scotland who didn't have a king at this point, having to do with, you know, the heir having died and, and, and you know, or, or, you know, no clear heir. And there was lots of squabbling over who was going to be king of Scotland. And, you know, the Scottish power at this point wasn't at the, uh, wasn't at a point where they could decide it themselves. Edward had ingratiated himself to too many Scottish nobles so that even the king, He's not really mentioned 
um, in the movie. I mean, you do hear about the Balliol clan later, but John Balliol was the nominal king of Scotland during most of this. And while he was one of Edward's men, even William Wallace claimed to, to swear fealty to um, John Balliol as the king of Scotland, even though Robert the Bruce, as we will see, will la- would later become king. So, you know, at the time, oh God, I, I always wondered how they did this scene because they hang all these bodies and, you know, when, when you see decapitations in movies, and we'll see some later here, you can make a, a you know, a fake head, um, but these seem to be all real people hanging, like that guy right there. I, it's not really clear how they did this. And they dwell on it as they need to, and then they needed young William Wallace to see it. So, you know, part of the narrative brilliance of this movie, and it is brilliant, almost virtuosic level, there are no unnecessary scenes. They know exactly how long to dwell in terms of cinematography on scenes like this. And look at this. They know how to stay in scenes like this. It doesn't matter that this didn't happen because it does communicate the desperation of the situation of the Scots in the late 13th century, the late 1200s. And to see the kids being hung too, that of course would be you know, the most horrifying to all of them, but especially uh, to William. So this is the early phase of you know, William's development as a future guardian of Scotland. And here's the early, you know, discussion of the people from his village and surrounding areas to go on a fight with his father, his brother there. That's his father sitting. But a bunch of the other men here will, you know, continue to exist in the story and be major characters when William Wallace comes back as an adult. We will see that he leaves the village. We see that they hide the swords. Um, because they're not allowed to have weapons according to English law. They're not even supposed to have bagpipes or play their music. The oppression is really at a very high level. And again, you know, historically, I'm going to try and just talk about sort of the bigger picture things having to do with the nobles and the kings and the battles. These small details, I'm not going to talk about just one because no one really knows. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of written history about Scotland at this point. It was mostly from the British perspective, uh, the English perspective. And actually, I think Robert the Bruce in his narration talked about how, you know, history is written by those who are hanging people from the other side. History is written by the victors, as we know. This is the last time he'll see his dad or brother alive. I don't know where they found this boy. He's a phenomenal actor. He must be Scottish. His accent is too convincing for a kid. And those blue eyes, you needed it to make the transition to Mel Gibson. It's the nice thing about having blue eyes as an adult actor. There just aren't that many, you know, grown men with blue eyes. And so it, it transmits it well. So, yep, the orange cloaks of the English forces. <laughs> this is great because you think you're going, kids, what do you don't take these guys on? Really, you have no shot, don't do it. But you realize that they're just playing a game. And that is young Hamish. And his adult version shall be played by 
Brendan Gleeson, one of the great all-time performances. And this is where I started to love Brendan Gleeson. This is important, all this stuff. The, the fact that Wallace is better at throwing rocks, the fact that Hamish is always punching him, he's bigger and stronger, Wallace is a little bit more athletic and intelligent, I guess you would say. So, as I was saying before, there's there's a narrative simplicity to this movie that even though it's a three-hour medieval epic, you know, there, there's a lot going on from sort of a historical perspective, but from a character perspective, we are either with Wallace, Robert the Bruce, who I'll talk about when he comes on later, or uh, King Edward, the Longshanks, one of the great evil villains of all time in this movie. And, you know, there's not really a single frame sh or extended shot that in this movie that doesn't work. It's just all perfect. And, you know, as a kid, I loved it because of the fantasy elements. And I don't mean fantasy in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, like, you know... I had the fantasy of being a Highland warrior with a giant sword fighting a bad guy against all odds and the feeling of oppression and suffering. And I think, you know, looking back on it, um, well, first of all, I think looking back on it, there was, I loved all these filmic artistic aspects without even realizing it at the time. You know, if you're just a smart person and you're a kid, you may not understand it, but... It, it communicates uh, a harmony of film and precision. But I think as a Jewish person, I always identify with underdogs who are oppressed by greater forces. Not to say that other people can't, but you know, Jews are particularly sensitive to these sorts of things. So that's Hamish's father who just said, come here, lad. And he will appear later as a great warrior, even though he's probably in his 40s or 50s. I love those giant oxen, by the way. I mean, just miss them. They, they, they're so big and beautiful looking, it doesn't even look real. So the guy in frame right now with the beard who's treating the bodies, that is the father of Murin who becomes the love of William's life. Even though he doesn't know it quite at the time, there's Murren's mom, Murren's dad. And, you know, what's great is, even when Wallace builds up a huge army, his main captains and confidants are either these people or others from the village, including his man Hamish. And, you know, in reality, there are tons of clans involved. He probably had other senior advisors, but this movie introduces the perfect number of characters, and this is always my complaint about Game of Thrones and even Lord of the Rings, which is a near-flawless trilogy from my perspective. Up oh, there's Young Murren. Uh, even Lord of the Rings, you just have so many characters. And that's just, it's because of the books, but they balance it well. Game of Thrones, so many characters you don't even care about. In this one, you've got a few, you know, central characters, and then maybe 10 or 12 supporting. 
all of whom are, are, are part of the battle to come or, you know, related to it. And, you know, one can only imagine in poor Scotland, where you're barely getting by to begin with, to have your brother and father killed, seemingly has no mother. You know, his uncle's going to come take him away in a little bit, but... See, this is great. Okay, so that's young Murrin, and if you look at her dress with the sort of uh, blue on the front and then the sort of over the uh, flaxy-colored, you know, dress underneath, is mirrored color-wise and and design-wise when we see adult Murrin in a little bit when he comes back. And he would have recognized her anyways. And this thistle is the, you know... This is the key to the love story. These two are so young, but they feel something for each other. You know, she's the one person who, you'd be the last person you'd think to understand at her age what's going on. You look at this kid crying. These kids are amazing. I'm always praising kid actors because there's so many bad ones. You see kids like this, you don't know if they're going to become actors when they're adults. But, you know, goddamn, they're good as, you know, as kids. As kid actors. Oh, here it comes. Now, this is Brian Cox, which I never realized before because, you know, I had never really... I didn't know who Brian Cox was in the 90s, but I'm watching this the other night in preparation for this. And it sounds like him, but he's got something with his eye going on and... Um, you know, it, it's actors like Brian Cox, who are great character actors, he often plays a bad guy, sometimes good guys. You, you know, he usually looks and, and plays like Brian Cox, but here he's playing a completely different role. He's got a great accent going on. <laughs> it's, it's great, little touches like that. As horrific as the circumstances are, he's starving as shit. Came from some distant area. To, to take William, unclear how he found out about the death so quickly, but you know the Scots are really all about family, and this movie is really about family, and not the family that you're born to necessarily, but the people that you grow up with and the people that you get close to through various situations. Brian Cox just has a great look about him. You know, William having visions is a recurring theme. There's these couple early on, and then you'll have visions of Marin later, after she's dead. This is great. So, (laughs) you know, one of the million reasons I love this movie was bagpipes. And around the time that this movie came out, out, I was starting to explore other kinds of music, and, you know, my dad was really into bagpipes. I couldn't understand why, but when I heard it in this context, it's just so beautiful. 
as I mentioned before, uh, maybe in my Lord of the Rings podcast, I, I have red hair and light complexion, and people think I'm Irish or Scottish. And, you know, it's weird to say that you identify with people because of how you look, but the music and the culture and just the, you know, earthly, humanistic qualities of this poor, simplistic, but very honest, very human way of life that they live, identified with, there's the hero's sword, it's as big as he is. And here, here comes the key part, is, you know, you think this is just some uncle that's going to take him away, but he's going to train him, and yep, you got to think with your brain first, and then you think with everything else. So he rides in on a horse, and they ride out on a carriage. It's probably not that irregular for, you know, kids to be taken by other family members in these situations. I mean, people are constantly dying, not just from fighting the English or each other, even. They don't talk about that, but the Scots often fought each other, which helped you know, the various kings of England, you know, utilize the... Uh, the divide and conquer. So this is a great scene. So, you know, when you're rewatching it, you already know what the look on the father's face is. God, is she beautiful. Sophie Marceau, I believe is her name. His dad knows that he's gay. And what's great about the movie is they make the son gay, but the son being sort of weak and amoral, certainly not as evil as his father, I don't know, you could say that the movie's trying to sell these characteristics because he's gay, but uh, there's his lover. Um, you know, I, I think Edward Longshanks had a suspicion that his son was not into girls. Um, but the gayness is a plot device because it gives his father extra reason to despise his son. It creates a situation where we don't know where the heir of the throne is going to be because, you know, it doesn't seem like he's going to sleep with a woman. Certainly there have been cases of, you know, gay rulers throughout history who have still been able to conceive. I mean, there are people today who have wives and children who are gay and vice versa with women. And, you know, here it is. Marriage, boom, already, princess. He says she's at the war council. Son doesn't want to come because he's not into ruling. He's into fucking around with his, um, you know, boyfriends. And, and not just his, you know, sexual boyfriends. It's just his male friends. Yep, if he wants his queen to rule when I'm gone, then by all means, stay and learn how. Longshanks can already tell that she's a superior leader, or could be a superior leader. Even though he uses her greatly to try and get to Wallace. So here it is. Nobles are key to the door of Scotland. And this is a recurring theme in the movie, is that the armies line up, and then the Scots decide they don't want to fight, and Longshanks, the king, offers them you know, various lands and titles, and you know, really it's just to bribe them, but it's also to get them off of some of their Scottish lands and get English lords into Scotland.
God, mm, Sophie Marceau, amazing. She does a great job here. She was in one of the James Bond movies. I'm not sure what else she does. <laughs> the trouble with Scots is that it's full of Scots. The trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. Oh, what a great line. Mirrored later by his uh, disdain of the Irish. Okay, Prima Nocta is sort of become a joke, but it's horrifying. I've, I've seen you've seen the movie before, but basically, you know, when a Scottish woman gets married, the lord of that area, the English lord, gets to have sex with her on her wedding night, and God knows what else happens during that. You know, Longshank says it's to breed out the Scots. I think he's giving the nobles a lot of credit in terms of their virility and fertility. It's really more of a weapon of, <laughs> is it? Uh, he, even when people agree with him, he gets mad. It's really more a method of control and fear. To to breed out the Scots via Prima Nocte is unrealistic, but it sends the message. All right, here's Robert the Bruce, who, this actor is great because he's constantly being manipulated by other lords, and most especially his father. He constantly... I should say he increasingly wants to embrace Wallace as the movie goes on, but his father and the other senior lords here, who we'll see a lot, these two guys, as well as a couple others. Bruce is still a politician at this point. Uh, Robert the Bruce, that is. (laughs) But even when he wants to join Wallace later, his father is constantly working in secret against him to remain in the good graces of the king, see, the father sees a long game already that they need some sort of leverage for his son, Robert the Bruce, to become king. The father needs, or the father believes that that can only happen if they stay in the good graces of the king. Robert, of course, increasingly disagrees with this, but continues to be bullied into betraying his own ideals. But the actor plays it so well that, you know, Mel Gibson, as William Wallace, you know, continues to trust the Bruce, even though he shouldn't. And you needed an actor with the sort of idealism and charisma where you buy it, you know. William Wallace is always telling people in power who do have good hearts, whether it's the Bruce or uh, Queen Isabella, um, Queen Isabel, played by Sophie Marceau, constantly telling them he sees strength in them. And part of that is true. He does have an instinctive feeling for, you know, good guys and bad guys, um, but it's also utilitarian, motivational tool to get what he wants. So here we see the joy of the Scottish culture. And, you know, listening to the bagpipes, actually, they use what are called small pipes a lot in the movie. You'll see the full-on big bagpipes that you're used to seeing. Small pipes are pumped with the arm instead of with the breath and have a slightly less harsh sound. There's Myrne. What a beauty. God, I was so in love with her. And that's part of what Again, one of the many reasons I love this movie was their relationship and how beautiful and such a natural way she was. Great smile. It's hard to hold Mel Gibson's gaze like that. I mean, it's almost creepy how he's staring at her constantly. Oh, 
Oh man. Alright, so for me this is this is when the movie takes off. And the first time you're watching it, you don't necessarily put together you've dropped your rock. You don't necessarily put together that that's Hamish. And we see that William doesn't like a fight. At least not yet. The English won't let us train with weapons, so we train with stones. And this is him repeating his uncle's line. <laughs> he was like, nope, it's not in your head, it's in your biceps. Yeah, Hamish? See, I don't think I even picked up on that the first time when he said Hamish. And this is great. I mean, this is how organic their weddings and celebrations were. Everyone's dancing, they got something. But all of a sudden, you know, there's a new form of entertainment. Everyone circles around and watches this ridiculous display. But with Braveheart, scenes generally set up multiple things. So here we're setting up numerous things. One, that people know who he is and that his best buddy from childhood, Hamish, is here. That they still have their sort of competitive um, you know, friendship is immediately rekindled. I could crush you like a worm. And this is also where we see that uh, Wallace has a gift for putting on a show. When you're a leader and people follow you, yes, courage and bravery, personal example, all important, but you're putting on a show, like with his great speeches that he gives throughout the movie. Everyone's rooting for Hamish. Including Murrin, which is great. I always wondered, you know, what he missed on purpose. He can't hit his best friends. Although he looks like he's surprised that he missed. This is great. And this shows that, you know, wits can... Outweigh strength at times. You look a wee bit shaky. I might, um, I should have remembered the rock. See, they're calling back to childhood. Like, all the lines and scene, it's all calling back to things that have happened before or are going to happen. And they manage to get character-building moments that are always within the plot. This is a movie that I think there's an extended cut, but you just don't need it because it's so flawless and it's filming and execution and editing. You know, I mean, this this scene is sort of the beginning of the end. And I often say this in great movies, is that, you know, like with Gollum in Return of the King, or uh, The Two Towers, you know, Gollum turns to Good Smeagol for like 10 minutes before he turns back. You've already bought it, which makes it even more heartbreaking. And here we're seeing the joy of the Scots despite the English. And here it comes. This is the first uh, first brick in the wall for Wallace. Actually, no. This is the second brick in the wall. Th the first brick in the wall was, uh, it was his father and brother being killed. But as we'll see shortly, he will try for a short time to be a pacifist. I love that another guy attacks before the, the groom even does. And then the groom goes at it. Hamish goes, oh, God, this, this gives me chills. 
every time. I mean, even as a kid, I wasn't like a big crier, you know, when I'm 14, but I would often tear up watching this. Just, she's just her peaceful, loving, gentle touch. She's trying to save her husband's life. She knows her husband would die if he could to prevent this horror from happening where she's going to basically be raped. And, you know, she's basically saying, we have our whole lives together. I love you. Whatever happens tonight doesn't mean anything, you know, even if she gets impregnated. I would imagine they would take care of that child. And there's a lot of slow movement in this movie that's not slow motion. There's very rarely, like, like that little move there, there's a tiny bit of slow motion on it. They add just a little tiny bit of slow motion. But I think in a lot of cases, they just have the actor sort of move slowly, which looks way more organic and less cheesy. Um, but the music that was playing when she was telling all the soldiers to stand down and her husband to stand down is just just beautiful. This is one of the great all-time movie soundtracks. Uh, the soundtrack was one of the uh, many reasons I fell in love with this movie by James Horner. Owned it on CD, listened to it all the time. There was so much ground to cover in this movie, and... You want to give substance and depth to the Murren relationship because that is what drives Wallace all the way to the very end. Even when he's captured and tortured and killed, it's because of Murren that he's able to keep it together. And there's Murren's dad, who he saw in the beginning. And, you know, again, they know who he is. Even though he's just come back from being away, they were very close to his father, as we saw. And so, you know, he's trying to play protective father, but, you know, I mean, if you can't trust this guy, then who can he trust? It, it's a funny idea that, you know, she she must be well into her 20s and still living with her parents. And <laughs> I always joke about, you know, beautiful girls in their mid to late 20s are rarely single, so he was lucky that she was... uh Waiting around for him or somebody. Yeah, it's it, it's you she takes after. This is beautiful. Who cares that it was just raining? This makes so much symbolic sense. It's raining, but then they're on the horse, they're together, and then the sun comes out. In Scotland, although often chilly and cloudy, the sun is out, is glorious. Look at this. I went horseback riding um, with my mom and sister. I went horseback riding with my mom and sister at the Isle of Skye, which is a, an island off sort of the northern, I think the northwestern coast of Scotland, where some people don't even speak English. They just still speak Scots Gaelic, or they speak very little English. I like this. I like that he admits that he's been sort of staring at her and being a little creepy. But she she sees the goodness in him. He's not a creep. He's just really in love. And, you know, from <laughs> from a sort of logistical standpoint, it seems odd that he would have fallen in love with her in three seconds when he was a small child, recognized her immediately as an adult who looks totally different. He sort of does look like his kid. She looks a little different. 
but because of the acting performances, you know, that's what sells it. You don't need there to be a long courtship. They just, there are time jumps in this relationship, and, and you need it because, as I was getting at before, you know, you got to get to the fighting in the actual war. But, like, I'm always talking about what are you fighting for? What are the stakes? You know? Is it enough to survive? No, we must be worthy of survival. As William Adama says. Yeah, he just... He's been all over the world. So, okay, so it says that he went to France and Rome. Now, in terms of history, there's some evidence that at some point during the conflict with England, he did, in fact, go to France, or it's been put forward the possibility that he actually went to France to seek the French help against the English. God, look at her. She's such a natural beauty. It's interesting. I remember, you know, growing up, there, there was sort of an ethereal beauty about Princess Isabel, um, but Sophie Morceau, who he, of course, has a short fling with later. But I'm all about natural beauty. And when I say natural, I mean, like, girl next door. She's totally that just beautiful girl next door. She doesn't, not a queen, although she could be. She'd be a great queen. The two of them rolling together, my god. Oh, there's the thistle. And this is what locks it up. And the way she plays it is great because she doesn't know what it is. And it takes her a second when she looks at it to remember. See, she doesn't remember that that was him. That's so cool. Like, she knew that he was a boy that used to live there, obviously. But she didn't put it together. And that was why they cast at the beginning, you know, it's like, well, the little girl seems to be a few years younger even than little William Wallace is when she gives it to him. But it plays so well because she was young enough that it took that giving back of the thistle to her before she realized who he was, even though he knew the whole time. <laughs> what kind of meeting? The secret kind. All right, so we know Campbell, who's Hamish's father, this guy, he's always trying to start a war. Or lecturing about his father. You know, and and, I mean, you know, they shouldn't be maybe telling him, we know your father better, but really they did. William was too young. Although, his uncle Argyle, who I think, um, his uncle who took him in the beginning, um, who played by Brian Cox, I I think was his brother's, uh, was his father's brother, not his mother's brother. But Argyle does say, you have the look of your mother. So clearly Argyle had met the mother. This is great. I love it. You're expecting just one more to hit. He hits her with the rock. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Forbidden love. This is so hard to watch every single time, this whole first act with Marin, because I totally buy that relationship. I mean, you, you... As an audience member, you need to fall in love with her the way he does because that becomes the 
you know, raison d'etre of the war. He's always thinking of her. And he's not just thinking of her. He is thinking about all of Scotland. But she, to him, represents everything that is wonderful and beautiful and good and decent and real about Scotland. I often talk about, you know, Messiah figures in movies. It's always about a woman. Other than Luke Skywalker. We don't really know Luke's sexuality, I guess. But, you know, Neo needs Trinity. Aragorn needs Arwen. William Wallace needs Murren. Even when she's dead. And there's something about how the romance is on this movie. Although the sex scene coming up is kind of hilarious. Mostly just because of Mel Gibson's luck. But there's something with how the romance was done with this movie that I really connected with as a kid. I don't know why. I, 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 I've always been uncomfortable with romance in movies. Not, not the romance part, but just the sexuality part. I get uncomfortable long you know, kissing or sex on screen. It's just one of my things. It feels a little voyeuristic to me. I always like when, even in rated R movies, I like when directors are restrained when it comes to you know, the sexual content. Not that you can't show nudity or have it be, you know, I mean, or have rape when it's called for or whatever, but just don't make it into pornography. So we're 36 minutes in, and they're getting married. And, you know, this is great. This is exactly the kind of, you know, basic wedding gown that that she might have, I don't know, stole from her mother. I love this idea of, you know, wrapping each other's hands together in the plaids and... uh, And one of the things that happens in these Scottish weddings is that they present each other with fabric. So she made that for him, and then he gives her... Because each clan, each family has a specific plaid, you know? It looks all the same if if you don't look closely and don't know about Scottish culture, but, you know, the Wallace people or the Wallace clan have their own specific pattern, plaid pattern, or plaid as they might say, and he gives it to her, and that, of course, becomes a plot point. Married in secret. So, okay, so here comes the funny sex scene. So I'll I'll talk to this a little bit, but what's great about how they set this up is that you think, like, the priest is (laughs) going to... The look on her face. Oh, God, look at Mel Gibson. See, this is way over the top. I would never have done this. Although this is a beautiful shot, and not just because she's got a beautiful body. As does he. Mel Gibson, man, what a stud. It's too bad he's a drunk anti-Semite. I really don't hold it against him. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of anti-Semites out there, and he just has has problems. And I just love this movie so much. I just separate it. There are a lot of actors out there who aren't the best people. 
you just got to separate it. You know, Christian Bale, everyone says, is a dick. Russell Crowe. Um, a lot of Australians. Although Hugh Jackman's like the nicest guy ever, so. So yeah, I mean, I say this in my Lord of the Rings podcast in regards to the Aragorn Arwen thing. I don't mind a little bit of the cheesy romance because you need to sell it. And they've got great chemistry. They're really going at it here. I mean, you know, props to her for being comfortable enough in her skin to not only be topless on screen, but to, you know, have, have an intense, you know, physical encounter while basically naked. I love this because, you know, this is what their daily life would look like if the horribleness that's about to happen never happened. You know, they'd get up in the morning, she'd help him put on his, you know, his plaids, his kilt. And they'd start kissing because they love each other, and then she'd finish. And this is it. This is where this where everything goes downhill. Oh, so as I was saying, you know, you think it's the priest that's going to give them away, or that's someone spying on them, but it's actually Wallace's fault because he just can't stay away from her, stop looking at her, and it's the old creepy English soldier who notices it now. They never say specifically if the English are aware that they were married in secret. They they technically, here it is, she's happy to see him, but she's also a little, yeah. They say they kill her because she assaulted one of the king's men. Although they do find the piece of plaid inside of her, her shirt indicating that it's Wallace. See right here? Okay, so this guy's starting to notice. So I like that they keep it mysterious. You know, it it seems... Oh, there it is. I shouldn't have shown that. Yeah, it implies that he sees that they're married illegally. You know, you'd think that there would just be people who are lovers, although possibly in an old-school Catholic society. Like, uh, like, you know, rural Scotland, that two people, a man and a woman, wouldn't dare act like that in public unless they were married or betrothed in some way. And this is it. The last beautiful shot of Murren. And, uh, you can't just skip over this part, you know? Even if you're in the mood to just see some, some battle, you can't skip over this stuff. Because this is, this is it. I mean, the seeds of the rebellion are here. Now, oh god, this is so horrifying. And this is the other thing the movie does is that the violence in this movie is very brutal, and they 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 don't pull away from it. You don't see like real rapes much these days. I mean in movies, oh, he's licking her, and she's letting him do it as an actress. It's horrifying. I mean, she really... <laughs> Murren sells the whole thing. She does. I, I think even Mel Gibson, with his huge ego, would have to admit that she sells the movie. Yes, he carries the second two-thirds alone, but her performance with him and here and everything else... This is why you hate the English. This is why Prima Noctu was horrifying, but you didn't see it actually happening. 
but this is an actual rape, sexual assault. And, yeah, they're going to sum up pretty quickly uh, that this is not going in a good way. So this is it. This last time he sees her alive. Unclear, I guess. It's somewhat unclear why he just lets her go. Um, I guess he figures the horse is fast enough to get by them and that he's gonna... He's basically trying to distract them. And he's gonna distract them. But they have... See, he he looks... And it looks like there's no soldiers, but somehow they catch up or, you know, they needed a plot device to separate them and to him and for him to get to the grove and her not to be there and realize what had happened. And see, even here, he's not fighting. Oh, there he goes. He's fighting there. Some of the, those cuts in this movie you can, you can see. Oh, it looks great, though. It does look like he totally hit her. God, it's brutal. Treat a woman this way. <laughs> I love him. See, it, what he should do is just go straight to her, but he doesn't realize she's been captured. So the real William Wallace, who did become a Scottish knight, who was eventually captured and killed for treason, and who did lead his people to a number of victories. Somewhat different than this one. There's some evidence he's actually from the south of Scotland, uh, which would obviously be a big change from the Highlands, and furthermore, seems likely two things were the case that are not the case here. One, he was a minor noble, of some sort. I mean, it says he's a member of the lesser nobility, but they don't know much about his history or parentage. And two, it speculated that his prowess on the battlefield could not have come out of nowhere. He must have fought in some sort of military situation, not because of his personal fighting skills, because of his strategy. God, I remember in the theater, and every time you watch it, you're just going, please don't do this, please don't do this. But in the theater, you're going, he's going to come. And this is what makes this movie great. They do not flinch. They do not flinch. I mean, they could have even partially killed her, and then he got to say a few goodbye words to her. And Nope, just going to slit her throat. Do they show her throat? No, they just show her dying, thank God. They do show his throat when William does the same thing. God. McCormick, Catherine McCormick, I want to say is her name. She's so beautiful, so brilliant. I looked up her IMDb credits. Didn't have a whole lot, but... You know, movies like this, it's the same with Lord of the Rings and a lot of epics. Movies like this when they've got great stars and great directors and great writers, can bring out incredible performances from unknown actors. You know, as great as Mel Gibson is in this, and we're about to see him kick ass for the first time, and this is when he becomes Braveheart, basically. As great as Mel Gibson is, kind of knew he'd be good, maybe not this good, but... Didn't necessarily know 
that Catherine McCormack as Murrin and some of these other characters, many of these other characters, would be great. I mean, the guy who plays Longshanks is an old-school actor, been around forever. So, you know, he's all Shakespearean and, and just brilliantly evil. Brendan Gleeson wasn't as well-established, I don't think, yet here. But he's, you know, a huge superstar now. Um, and, you know, he's Irish, so the Scottish accent isn't, isn't a stretch. So Brennan Gleeson sort of became active in the early 90s, but it looks like Braveheart was his first big role, and he's had a million great roles since then. One of my favorite actors, and Hamish is one of my favorite all-time characters. So the build-up to this is great, and, and you know, the the conceit of, of Braveheart is buying into the revenge fantasy, but they don't fetishize the revenge to the point where it's just all about him. Even though in some ways it is, and late in the movie, Hamish sort of calls him on it, that he's a little selfish or something, and getting revenge. But he doesn't torture these guys. He kills them all as quick as possible. He just wants them dead. He is nothing. And look, Mel Gibson just has great looks throughout the movies, but this look is great because... He looks sad, but strong, but resigned, not giving anything away. I think he's holding some sort of nunchucks back there. I, I have trouble. Oh, that's a great shot. Again, very tasteful slow motion, where I think the, while there is some, you know, like a post-production slow motion here, the actors are moving slowly. He's not walking full speed there. It it just looks too natural. Don't want to see William Wallace when he's angry. Oh, God. I like how boyish he looks. And, and, and the look on Mel Gibson's face. That he's almost sad to have to kill him. Man, there's the nunchuck. You can see the cut there again. Doesn't matter. They kill so many, I mean, n not actually, but th there are a lot of horse deaths in this movie, which is so hard to do, especially with animal rights, which, which oh my god, straight in the neck. We'll get back to the horse killing later. This is his move. He loves cutting people's legs out from under him. Like, Aragorn goes for the head, he goes for the legs. And yep, Vigo stole that in the cave troll fight. And this is great. Once he kills a few, that's all it takes to get him going. I love this. Campbell, oh my god. Hamish is such a great fighter. It's funny, you know, Hamish is one of the biggest guys they have among a lot of big guys. But because of his Scottish accent, and because the fact that he uses a big battle axe and the recklessness with which he fights... His very Gimli ask from Lord of the Rings. I always thought that they could be like long lost brothers or something. So, as I was saying, you know, Wallace's military prowess would make more sense if he was in an army, and there's some speculation that that army might have been the English army. 
you know, during that period that this takes place in, when there wasn't a real king, Balliol, who was, you know, pretending to be king with the authority of King of England, then it's possible that he had, uh, he had fighting experience with the English army. There's also a theory that he could be of Welsh descent, which is funny, although being from southern Scotland wouldn't be super surprising. The Welsh are definitely not good guys in this movie. This is great. That's the thing. The English wouldn't let them have swords and spears, but they couldn't stop them from having axes and hammers. I mean... That's how that guy needed to die. And what this does is, it's not just that it's revenge fantasy here. It's that it's it's the family aspect. Some of these people know Wallace better than others, but they know exactly what happened to him. And... The death of Murren is like the death of one of their wives or sisters or daughters, and that is what it's all about, and that's why the Scots are, for a while, and in some cases, able to win against much greater odds, much greater numbers. I like this. You think he's going to kill him here? Oh, God. The blood in this movie is so real-looking. I think Ridley Scott... I also watched Gladiator recently. I might do a commentary on Gladiator, but I think Ridley Scott was definitely watching this movie, and I remember when Gladiator was getting so much acclaim and winning awards, I'm just like, I love Ridley Scott, and Gladiator was cool. Here we go. They just show it. I don't know how they do that. That's It's a prosthetic of some sort they built into his neck. That's great makeup. That's so hard to do. And and it's, it's interesting. I mean, the temptation would have been to have him, have Wallace torture the guy, and you almost want him not to die so quickly, and there it is. The proof that there was an illegal marriage. But Wallace isn't into torturing. He's into winning. And, you know, they wanted to save the torturing for the bad guys, I suppose. What do they say here? Macaulay? Macaulish? I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, they're already chanting his name. Not sure what McCallish is. Her family was called McLeno or something like that. So here we are again, another horribly depressing death scene or funeral scene. He's lost his dad, lost his brother, now lost the love of his life. I mentioned this in the Matrix commentaries, which I probably won't have released yet when I release this, which is the image of kissing someone who's dead. Such a powerful image. It's so much more effective than someone having a slow death. 
like Trinity and that horrible scene at the end of Matrix Revolutions. Trinity is dying so slowly. Uh, and she goes, kiss me one last time. And it's just, this is so much more effective. That's the thing. This, this movie is, is exhibit A1 of show don't tell. It's not that there's no exposition. The only real exposition is the king describing the military situation. But even that doesn't feel like exposition. And this is it. I mean, so, other than them chanting Wallace, for the last, like, two to three minutes at least, there's been zero dialogue. Not counting the priest. But this is just beautiful right here. He, he's giving his life up to Marin's dad, or at least a, a blessing to forgive him for his perceived sins. But he can't be angry at Wallace. And, you know, it's one of those things that you get understand even more the more you watch it, because then you realize that that's him in the beginning, who's one of his father's best friends, and cleaning up his father when his father dies, fought with his father. So he's known Wallace since before Wallace was born. <laughs> oh yeah, this is great. So Hamish's dad, Campbell, is constantly getting skewered uh, or arrows at him or whatever. This is great. No, here, you can do it. No, no you can do it. I'll hold him down. I love it. Poor Seems like a waste of good whiskey. <laughs> This is to close the wound, by the way, people. They took the arrow out. Uh, this is great. It, it reminds me of Battlestar Galactic. It's like... All you need to do is punch someone's lights out once and you feel much better. And you can be buddies again. Also, I should mention the guy with the black hair and the scars who is the one getting married to that beautiful woman who was then taken away to be raped by the Lord at the beginning. He becomes one of the, you know, uh, advisors or aide-de-camp or whatever you want to call them of Wallace. He doesn't have a lot of speaking parts, but he's just one of And this guy, too, the leader of this clan, ends up becoming very close to Wallace, even though you only see him in small bits and pieces. You know, Wallace is about family, and while he draws a big army ultimately he trusts the people that are closest to him that he's known the longest yeah this guy says you know we're gonna get in trouble too for what you did um but you know he's really just trying to convince wallace to let them fight there everyone is gearing for a fight they needed a leader and, and now wallace is that guy but they're ready to go this is so hard to shoot so this is all in ireland i think the mountains, I'm not sure where they found mountains like that in Ireland. They must have filmed some in Scotland. Cause, yeah, I mean, Ireland has hills. Okay, so this begins the offensive against the English. And what's great about the offensive against the English is that they find new and creative ways of, you know, taking these guys down in different environments. You know, I mean, this is a little... Okay, they're disguised. Shouldn't the guy know? But it doesn't matter, because the way this flows in the delivery... So, if you don't remember, this is a guy that um, raped 
the guy's wife with Prim Nocta in the beginning. This is great. Watch Hamish. Whoop. Okay. Back on the head. <laughs> He's not used to wearing a helmet like that, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're a little, you know, quote-unquote uncivilized, like... <laughs> I have honor of men who shall be returning now. And this is it. Make it quick. Again. Not gonna torture the guy. Just gonna kill him. So, yeah. This guy I was talking about is another advisor of Wallace's. I like this. Yeah, spit on him. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He did hit full force on that first one, so he could get a second one. And I guess it's the closest to torture that you're gonna get. So they rarely spare soldiers, but this is the first sort of major region that they took back. And he needs that message to be sent to the king. Scotland is free. Barnet. Uh, well, at least he's practicing some military disciplines, right? <laughs> A little pat on the butt by his lover. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you have a gay guy as a bad guy and they sort of play up the gayness, I guess this is 95, it's Mel Gibson, but, you know, the father, who's clearly not gay, Edward Longshanks, the king, is so evil that, you know, as incompetent and sniveling as the son is, you still are sort of on his side. But it's interesting because, uh, you know, comparing to Gladiator, Joaquin Phoenix is the exact opposite. Although Joaquin Phoenix is also whiny and sniveling. Joaquin Phoenix wants to be an emperor with unlimited power. This guy, the prince, just doesn't seem to be interested in ruling. And his dad hates him for that and hates him for being gay and for being weak and whatever. But. You know, uh, as a watcher, it's hard to watch this and, and really hate the kid that much because some people just are unfit to rule and they know that they're unfit, but they can't do anything about it. I think if he had another son, maybe he would maneuver the son's death or something. Of course, a different line does take over the throne according to this movie. Okay, these two are great together. Her little assistant here, I'm not sure what her name is, who's constantly providing secrets and gossip and support. I mean, she she says straight up, I hope your you know horrible husband gets killed by Wallace. They already have a sense of this guy. See, they, they already like Wallace before even hearing the stories about him because he's the first one to make the king angry and actually challenge. Let's see, what's her name? Nicolette? Yeah. Jean Marine plays Nicolette, who's the maiden, the handmaiden of the princess. 
and plays a huge role herself, actually. This is definitely one of those types of movies where, you know, it's mostly about men and men fighting men, because that's what happened, but the women that are involved, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, way to get trapped in a canyon, asshole. I wonder what they do with them. And probably slaughter them. But the women, you know, with the limited power and mobility that they have, what they can accomplish. You know, Murrin is what gives William strength, both before and after her death. Princess Isabel and Nicolette, her a little assistant, really changed the tides of the war, ultimately fail, at least on the surface, but actually win in the end. So here's Robert the Bruce's father with leprosy. It is a much less gruesome version of leprosy than we see in Kingdom of Heaven with the King of Jerusalem, who is the brother of Eva Green's character and Orlando Bloom, who's the main uh, character, is one of the principal advisors of the king in that movie, The King Is trying to keep the peace between Christians and Muslims, even though extremists on both sides are trying to push for all-out war by massacring each other. But he is a particularly horrifying case of leprosy as a young, young man. Actually, his voice is by Edward Norton. I totally didn't mention that in the Kingdom of Heaven commentary. This guy you can look at, it looks just sort of like an orc or something. But when the King of Jerusalem dies, he's been wearing a mask the whole time, and you haven't... And Eva Green takes off his mask when he dies. It's he looks like an alien. I, I don't really know, you know how how deformed is sort of the maximum deformity for uh, for leprosy. And this is you know, and this is us being introduced to his father, both manipulating and lying to his son. He thinks. Compromising makes a man noble. Wallace thinks uncompromising, or being uncompromising makes a man noble. Being true to one's ideals. You know, there, there's a great line where Wallace is talking about nobles and titles and lands and how worthless it is. And, and one of the nobles says, alliances are made in such ways, and, and Wallace just says, slaves are made in such ways, and he's right. Slaves, I mean, you know, you don't just become slaves sometimes. Sometimes you get bought off and bribed. And, you know, we're, we're slaves to our society in some ways. And money has a lot to do with it. <laughs> he will bury him in those clothes. That's great. Yeah, I like their little, uh, their little chats. I like how proud she is that she slept with someone from the council to get this information. <laughs> Use tongue. Uh, I mean, this, this is medieval times. Women just didn't have that much power. And, uh, you know. The way, the way her uh, her maiden 
sort of says it though. It wasn't like she was raped or anything like that. It was it was by her choice to get information. And I love this recounting of you know of what she heard of William Wallace from whoever this guy was because it's close enough to the truth, but there's some embellishment or just changing of details, which is exactly how it would happen. And, yeah, what would she say? C'est l'amour, no? Yeah, that's love, no? Love, I wouldn't know. Yeah, they're already in love with the idea of William Wallace, which is not, you know, untainted by their hatred for the king and the prince and everything else. And she was the daughter of the French king. It's not clear why they would agree to a marriage with England and France being at war. Okay, this is where... This is where the tactician comes in. This is where the big strategy comes. They're talking about the English heavy cavalry. The Scots don't have enough horses. They certainly don't have, like, war horses. Charge into battle. No one's ever survived a, a charge of heavy cavalry. And uh, they say there's 300. But in this situation, 300 could take out, you know, many, many times their number. Right. It's interesting that no one's ever thought to use spears against uh, against them. <laughs> this is great. Some men are longer than others. Your mother been telling you stories about me again? <laughs> it's nice that they share the laugh, you know? That's what's great. As horrifying as the movie is, and you're still, you know, just so sad about what happened to Marin, you know, they have to keep it light because their odds are so, so long. And this is a classic misdirection, where the character you think is the good guy is the bad guy, and vice versa, with Stephen the mad Irish vid, who's one of the great parts of this movie. I mean, you know, you put him and Hamish together, it's just phenomenal. And it's great that an Irishman becomes his other right-hand man along with Hamish. He's eating their food. All he wants is to kill Englishmen. This is one of the best lines ever. Divine is equal and Irishmen must talk to God. Yes, Father. Don't change the subject, just answer the fucking question. Right, and so you think maybe he's dangerous, which he is, but not for the reasons we think. He snuck a dagger. But they don't oversell it because... As soon as Wallace says, you fight with me, you can kill Englishmen, he's going, hey, good, excellent. This guy's great. I love Stephen growing up. I, I always love the madman characters, the good guy, the good guy madman characters, the crazy guys. <laughs> Ireland, it's my island. And they just call it out right away. And you can see his chemistry is perfect, because it's true. He says, I come to the right place. All these guys are crazy. You gotta be crazy to take on a mission like what they're doing. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's great to see William smile. You know, it's like Orlando Bloom in the Kingdom of Heaven, or even Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. He rarely smiles, you know. He's so tormented. And, I don't know. Neither of those guys... Well, I guess Orlando Bloom actually lost his wife at the beginning of the movie as well. But, you know, 
Wallace is able to separate his sadness in order that it will not become despair, and then he can be the leader that they need him to be. I like that the that it, the deer looks at him and he's still going to shoot and he doesn't flinch. Not one of those, oh, I can't kill it, what's looking at me? No, nope, they got to eat. It doesn't matter. I'm sure the deer understands at some level. <laughs> I don't know how they got the deer to do that. All right, and this is a classic misdirection, but they don't overplay it. It's a few seconds scene. Um, it actually took me a while to notice that Steven's holding the blade, not the hilt, which is how you have to do it when you're throwing uh, like a sword or a knife. You don't hold the hilt, you hold the blade. It has to do with the balance of it and the angle at which it's going to hit the person and the speed. He's got Wallace's back. We don't have to worry about that again. We know Steven is trustworthy. All right, so here's more of the, like, marching around nature porn stuff, which I love. So, right, the Highlanders are all coming to fight. And so, historically, this would make sense. Even if Wallace was from the South, they need the Highlanders just for sheer numbers and because they're the, you know, <laughs> most brutal fighters. And that's why the Romans were never able to conquer Scotland. And why the English were only able to conquer partially through proxy by using the nobles against each other. So this is it. This is the Battle of Stirling, and where the great William Wallace speeches. This is one of the great, you know, epic medieval battle scenes of all time. Probably the first of sort of modern epic medieval battle scenes. You know, the Lord of the Rings stuff would have never been possible, or Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven. Any of those movies would not have been possible without this stuff. And it's so practical that they weren't really even using CGI in medieval at this point, so... What they did was had thousands and thousands of Irish, I believe, soldiers from the Irish army fill out the ranks and ride the horses, you know, and be sort of in the background. And then they would have, you know, a hundred or whatever guys who actually could fight and who were doing choreographed stuff. I think they did use like mirrors or some minor CGI to extend the lines. And increase the the appearance of numbers. So you know this isn't a big deal to me because again I think like I always talk about this movie is in the spirit of what William Wallace and this whole rebellion was about. Reality was Sterling was a bridge. The actual Battle of Stirling, they basically wait for the Englishmen to cross the bridge and just take them down because, you know, it creates a bottleneck. In the real fight in 1297, 
it says that the English had, you know, 3,000 cavalry and 10,000 infantry, which is even way more than they have here. Usually the movies oversell it and overestimate the numbers, but it was a big battle. But the bridge was so narrow, and the English were so desperate and cocky, the Scots took them down. And in fact, the bridge broke from the weight of the horses and the soldiers. And so, uh, I don't know. I think that would have been a really cool battle scene. It seems like they could have done this just anywhere, you know? Just created the, some location where they would have just the armies lining up, and, and they wanted their first big battle, and really the, the biggest of the battles, this one. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. So yeah, there aren't that many there, but they're using some sort of, of mirrors or some, some tricks of the trade to make it seem bigger than they are, although there are a lot. I mean, I have to look up the production of this, but there were many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of, of uh, members of the Irish army. So the blue face paint is classic. It is never explained. I have no idea if that's historical. I don't know why they decided it should happen here, because he doesn't have it in the second battle. And I don't know how they got the patterns and the color, but it just works. I think that light blue is one of the colors of Scotland. Okay, so here's the spears. So back to the spears, it's interesting no one thought to use spears against cavalry before, but the idea is not just that they're using spears, but that, you know, they wait until the last minute to pick them up and that the English are too far away to realize that right now, as this little talk is going on, they're distributing the spears and, I guess, uh, describing to people what to do. But the histories do say that, you know, the Scots used guerrilla warfare before it was known as guerrilla warfare. And at that time, it was considered almost dishonorable to use guerrilla warfare. The, you know, England and France would just line their armies up and they would just go at it. And in this, they do ultimately line up and go at it, but they use a lot of tricks and they use the terrain later we'll see they you know are able to light the fields on fire burn a big part of the english army oh, here he goes when the guy goes uh william wallace is seven feet tall that's actually in one of the uh reports uh if you look on wikipedia you know one of the legends of william wallace was indeed that he was seven feet tall So the real Sterling, here as we get the speech here, which I used to know by heart. In fact, I knew large sections of this movie by heart. And man, when I watched this movie the other day in preparation for this, I wasn't sure I was going to do a commentary, but I said, oh, let me watch it. Maybe I'll do a commentary. I was, you know, five minutes in, I'm like, okay, I'm doing a commentary. I have not seen this movie in years, and I remember pretty much all the lines. And it's amazing when you're a kid and you watch a movie so many times. Like Star Wars, you know, you can repeat the whole thing by heart. I like that Wallace it reasons with them, you know. I mean, the classic line, and he's right, is, you know, would you rather live in oppression for, you know, one more year or 20 more years or however long you live and die in your beds never knowing what, true freedom tasted like. And this is what is so crazy and messed up about, you know, sort of <laughs> chivalry in the English medieval sense, is that 
You can rape women, you can kill children, hang them from the walls of your towns, you can decapitate people, you can quarter them, cut their limbs off, but, you know, somehow it's dishonorable if you don't just line up line up straight across from the other side and just charge with no real strategy because in most cases the superior numbers are going to win that's why the sterling battle in real life is kind of cool in which they had done it because that would be a perfect example of you know using terrain to your you, towards your advantage although they do do that in other ways here You know, and the 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 cockiness of the uh, English lords is, you know, a constant part of this movie, and it's part of what makes it great. You know, it's like you already hate the English for what they've done, but you, they have to make you continue to hate them by creating these completely cowardly, honorless, faithless. Commanders, and this is a. Uh, <laughs> uh, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. Oh man, Hamish has some of the best lines. So they name the nobles because these three guys all are important going forward. This is great, and this is actually really hard to do. Now, I will say right now, I haven't mentioned, I have not watched really much behind the scenes to this movie. I didn't really want to. I did see some stuff about how these battles were done and how they did the horses, and I'll describe that because I uh, teased the horse killing earlier. But, you know, little things like getting a bunch of guys on horses to stand still, the horses to stand still, and then have Wallace riding his horse sort of in and out of everyone else. It's very hard to do and keep the horses in one place in close quarters. And it's those things that, that really make the movie because, you know, it sells Wallace's confidence. It sells his disrespect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He says, nope, you can't just leave, but you must accept our terms. Then you must apologize to every man, woman, and child on your way back to England for a hundred years of theft, rape, and murder. All right, and this is the classic. You have no cavalry. You're outmatched. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> the commander kisses his own arse in the middle of the field, which is physically impossible, uh, even if it wasn't an insult. Yeah, it's great. So th these nobles at this point... You know, you can see the seeds of treachery, which are going to come later. They don't really want to fight. And Wallace does a smart thing here, which is realizing that they don't want to fight as much as his people want to fight. So he gives them the easy job, which is stand your horses right away and then flank the archers, who are completely defenseless. So the nobles and their people on horses, you know, the rich guys basically, they don't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting. But Wallace realizes they still need them, so gives them an easy task. And Wallace is always aware that the nobles are, are you know, full of treachery and, and should not trust them. But as we see as the movie goes along, <laughs> when his heart on a plate, as we see when the movie goes along, Wallace is forced to trust them against his own better judgment just because he needs 
the manpower. For better or worse, a lot of people serve these lords because if they don't, they get kicked off their land. So you can get kicked off your land and join Wallace's, you know, seemingly suicidal attempt to take down England. Or you can do what the nobles tell you to do. All the archers always look very small, and they look like kids. I mean, they all look like kids. Uh, no, I guess I uh, It makes sense that archers would be small. Uh, meaning, you know, if you're conscripted to fight, and you're forced to fight, if you're not big and strong, I mean, there's no point in sending you out there with a, with a, with a sword. Might as well just give you a bow. And you can, you know, hang back and be effective in that way. The drumming, the build-up of the drumming and all the shots is amazing. You see all the main characters in their face paint, which is a great device to, you know, our main sort of five, six, seven peeps in the face paint. Although, no, a bunch of other guys have face paint, too. Oh, it looks awesome. Yo, bastards! I love that. They really got riled up for this. Uh, uh, I always wonder what they're saying here. Who cares? They're just raring to go. Oh, this is great. Okay, so this is this scene and all of this stuff is where you just where I just fell in love with the Scots in general. They're just blatant disregard for respect for people who have no respect for them. I'm gonna flash them. I'm gonna moon them later. I mean, they're just constantly. It's not enough to fight. Um, you know, they have to it's a constant fuck you to the English. But there is strategic value towards it. They're showing their fearlessness. Or their apparent fearlessness. Yeah, those shields are a little small. It's too bad they don't have the uh <laughs> the Vikings shields. Create a real shield wall. You know, that's in Gladiator, that's what the Romans do so well. And that's why they are unstoppable and they have these big long curved shields or put them together form what they call the tortoise formation which is completely unbreachable by arrow or spear and and uh <laughs> yeah they really got a couple hundred people to moon the camera from a distance this is awesome oh and this is this is so horrible a couple guys get shot in the butt before they can turn around right there uh And, you know, this movie does what any great war movie does, which is that you got the good guys that you're rooting for, but even in victory, a lot of good guys get killed. That's, uh... That's warfare. Polotak. Yeah, they really make the English lords and commanders look like such pieces of shit. Sniveling cowards. Okay, so this is really hard to do. Um, you know, Peter Jackson in Lord of the Rings with the Rohirrim horsemen did similar stuff, but they were able to use CGI in a way that didn't really exist when this movie was made to increase the numbers. So, you know, even though the armies in Lord of the Rings are bigger, there are fewer, you know, quote-unquote real people because they can supplement it with CGI. But, you know, they're doing slow motion here, but we can do a full-on charge. You see the Rohirrim charge Pelennor Fields and Return of the King. There's all sorts of CGI horses in there. 
that get shot down by arrows and flip all over the place. But because it's so fast and it's done so well, you can't tell, but this is all real people. So, right, so they're focusing on a small number. These are the real, I mean, these are the real trained guys who know how to do this stuff. But those long um, uh, pikes or spears, or, or I guess they're lances, uh, technically, those are really hard to ride with. So they're running at full gallop. Okay, so that's a green screen. Whenever you s there's the ditch they run over, which you don't even see. Now, what's about to happen here with the spears is extremely, extremely hard to do. And this is where the killing horses comes in. I'm sure a lot of people were disturbed by this, but dude, this is how medieval warfare worked. Fighting horses and you're not on a horse, you gotta kill the horses. So, basically what happened here is that they, they had fake horses that they would put on like machines, like little springs, and they would, you know, as the fake horses get stabbed, they would, like, the springs would shoot up or something and basically knock off, the, knock the horses to the sides. Look at that. Uh, this this movie's gruesome, man. This is really about the horror of warfare, and, you know, it's tough because growing up I loved the war and the fighting, like, adolescent boys do, but I was always aware of how horrible it was. And, and they go out of their way to show it in the aftermath of the battles, all the dead bodies. Yeah, Commander's already realizing that they're in big trouble here. They took care of those heavy cavalry pretty fast. That's a beautiful shot. It's great. There's still some horsemen in the middle of the mob, so the back of the mob's going to take care of them while the rest of them run for it and take on the main infantry. Right, so this is, you know, in the Battle of Sterling Bridge, they're able to, to win easily because of the bottleneck of the bridge. Here it's just a straight-on run, and I'm totally fine with that for the movie. I just think the bridge thing could have been cool visually with the breaking with the horses on it, but you had to have this. And this collision right here, First of its kind. I know there have been other epics, Lawrence of Arabia, blah, blah, blah. This is the first time you ever see a full-on collision of, like, hundreds or thousands of people. Now, don't look too hard, like, far in the background, because you'll see some people sort of mimicking fighting. But the cuts are so quick, you don't really notice it. And, and at the same time, you see the axes and the swords and everything hit. Home. That's, yep, yep. Steven loves the knives and the short swords, which I love. That's how uh, Floki fights in Vikings. He's all about daggers. He's, you know, if you're fast enough, you just get out of the way of people's big weapons and, and get in for the close kill. There's Campbell still kicking ass. He's probably in his 50s. Oh, here it is. Boom! I love that. Sweep the legs. Oh, God. Yeah, Ridley Scott definitely took some notice of the blood in this movie. And yet, even here, Wallace doesn't realize the treachery. These guys charge in because they realize they can win the fight. It's interesting to think whether they would have still charged if Wallace's people hadn't been winning so definitively. 
but they don't see this as another step in the war to get rid of England. They see this as another step in having leverage against the king and increasing their holdings and lands and titles. And, uh, you know, underestimating the selfishness and, oh, God. Yeah, it seems like he chops his hand off. I'll have to watch that. Campbell's head looks like it gets chopped off. I don't remember him losing the hand, though. It's just so obvious to Wallace that this war needs to be fought and why it needs to be fought. Here we go, another horse death. Gotta do it. It's realistic. So when the horse is running, and then when the horse, there's the decapitation that you need. I wonder if all the Vigo decapitations in Lord of the Rings were a tribute to, to Wallace. But uh, see the priest with the dead boy. See, here it is. This is the horror of war. They don't have to show this, but they do. Because this is what sells it as being real. This is what it was like. That little boy there. It's so obvious to Wallace the warden needs to be fought. He just can't understand these other guys. And that's sort of why they needed to make him a commoner and not a minor noble. In some ways it would have been cooler if he was a minor noble. Because it would make the other nobles you know, look even worse. Because... As a commoner, he doesn't have much anyways. You know, he already lost his one true love. He doesn't have much money or land or anything. So, you know, it's why poor people are more willing to fight than rich people, to say the least. And it just works for sort of the, the mythos of the movie. And their first big victory. And, you know, this is always interesting to me. Well, people are just, look at their still, like, dying clutching and clawing on the battlefields that they'd be cheering, but, you know, they've all seen this before. And the wounded who can be saved, they will try to save them. One must assume. You know, in the movie, Wallace really lets his legend grow. And, you know, especially knowing Mel Gibson and just his whole persona, um... You know, some of it might be attributed to ego, but, you know, I think it really, for him, is more utilitarian purpose. It's to intimidate the king and his people, call them out, and to rally his own. And, you know, this is the, this is the beginning of the end in terms of his relationship with the nobles, which just began. Nobles are acting like this was some great victory, and he's a patriot, and blah, blah, blah. But we see in two seconds, it's all about alliances and titles. and Yeah, it's a great look. They're all very confused by this whole thing. Right, and this guy's like, I'm, I'm kissing his ass because of our bad guys. Well, okay, so this is the Balliols right there. Okay, that guy. I don't know if he's John Balliol. According to the history, at this point... Some guy named John Balliol was king, even though he wasn't fully independent in the way that Robert the Bruce will become independent later after Wallace is killed. And immediately the petitioning starts. Now, you watch Robert here, and we've seen a little bit of him with his father, with the nobles. He does seem to be an idealist. He doesn't like the petty bickering. But 
in a little bit, you know, Wallace is going to say, you know, I see strength in you, and I would support you as king if you just unite us. Seems to indicate that Wallace has more of an understanding of Scottish politics, maybe, than we were led to believe. Says he never met this guy before. It's possible there's clan affiliations where his, his family and clan are more associated with the Bruces. Who knows? He's just constantly trying to motivate people who aren't motivated. Stephen and, and, uh, and Hamish there do not need motivation. They are very motivated to kill Englishmen. Right, and this is where he says he's going to invade England. Yeah, <laughs> dressing down the council here. Yeah, fighting for the scraps from Longshank's table. You've missed your God-given rights to something better. He has so many great lines. The writing of this movie is just brilliant. There's not a bad line in the movie. They're all perfect. Right amount of humor, intensity, romance, adventure, war, darkness, heroism. And like Aragorn, William Wallace of the Braveheart sees himself as the guardian and protector of Scotland. And he leads by example. Yes, he gives good speeches. And he's charismatic. And even guys like the Bruce are drawn to him. But in the end, he leads because he needs to lead. You know, he steps into the role much more easily than Aragorn does. Which is interesting, because Aragorn actually has the birthright to be not just a noble, but a king. And that's actually what keeps Aragorn from embracing it, is that he uh, doesn't feel he's strong enough to, to do what he has to do as king. His bloodline is you know, tainted, or, or not as powerful as, as thought. Wallace is just a commoner. He's got nothing to lose. He leans because the other people around him... Look to him to lead. If there were a better leader, he would follow that guy. Right, okay, so he says, he's acknowledging that Bruce has the rightful title and not the Balliols. I'm not sure that's the case. In the histories, I'm pretty sure Wallace supported the Balliols, if only because they were the nominal king, uh, he was a nominal king of Scotland. Here he's saying he thinks Bruce has the right and that he would follow Bruce. And this is where Bruce really, uh, Robert the Bruce really wants to start to believe his father is continually, you know, shitting on his hopes and dreams, uh, both by what he says to him and then what he does behind his back, just constant treachery from his father. And, uh, you know, what's great about the movie, uh, here we go, they do a great job of casting. This guy does look like he would be the king of the, the, I'm sorry, that he would be the cousin of the, the king's son and the king. They also had to have the right face that was pale enough. And this is one of the things you only notice when you've seen the movie a million times, because you don't see it happen. But when this battle's over, uh, Wallace sends that guy's head in a box to the king, and the, the you know fake decapitated head looks so real. That guy just has a, a face that is easily, you know, mimicked and and. Uh, uh, props design, I suppose. Alright, we got the battering ram. Always love the battering ram. So, the only inconsistency, because Wallace is always the first one in battle, is that 
He's not pushing the battering ram right now. They wait for all of these guys to get killed with arrows, stones, and then eventually the, the, the burning tar. And then Wallace and his guys, you know, finish the job. But, you know, I mean, I talked about before in medieval stuff, like, you want your leader or leaders to fight, but you don't always want them on the front lines at all times because this. I mean, what if that were... Hamish and Wallace and, and Stephen and, and, and Campbell and those guys, their whole leadership would be gone. My guess is these guys volunteered to do it. I don't think Wallace had to order anyone to do it. But now they run. And this is great. You're like, how many times are they going to have to do this to break the wall? And they just need Juan. Yep, see, they don't have to show every battle. It's great. They showed the opening part of the siege, and it's just implied. <laughs> the window. Convenient, large window with no uh, bars or screens, but that is great. It's, ama it's amazing. I mean, even these minor characters manage to be so three-dimensional and convey so much. I mean, they do kind of portray him as sort of the stereotypical, like, whiny, gay guy. But, you know, if you really watch, it's really two separate things. He is weak and a coward, but it's not because he's gay. <laughs> yeah, hands away in the crown here. I mean, the, you know, the... the <laughs> The son is so pathetic that you almost look forward to his dad beating his ass, I hate to say it, just from a, a character standpoint. So yeah, it's not very clear. He's fighting the king of France, but the princess of France is married to him, the prince of England. His uh, lover boy here is, you know, pushing for him to stand up for himself. And this is great. I mean, you know, they don't show the sack of York. They just tell you. That's <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, like I said, it looks just like the guy. I wonder if they just made him more pale. Um in his makeup when we saw him a couple seconds, uh, a couple minutes ago. And so it would look more like the, uh, the fake head. The best is the return of the keg when, uh, you know, the orcs launch all the severed heads of the Gondorian soldiers. Release the prisoners. Oh, God. You know what's happening to this guy. 
Yeah, thing is, Philip's been around the whole time, but Longshanks is only acknowledging now that he exists. Just for this. This is great. What? Look up? It's the king? Okay. He can do what he wants. This is his only moment of bravery here, but he has no idea what he's doing. It's hard to know whether things would be better or worse if he had killed his father there. They couldn't be worse. I think just out of sheer incompetence and lack of ambition. A Scotsman would be extra motivated. Yeah, he still thinks he can buy Wallace off. Yeah, he's he's scared. Right, that's what I was just saying. Yeah, the sight of his son would, would encourage the rebellion. Whom do I send? Pretty obvious. Ah, the dream with Marin. You need this. You definitely need this. I mean, you, you see it coming, basically, you know. I mean, you know, the big medieval epics to follow this movie, like Gladiator and Lord of the Rings, they take so many tropes that this movie sets up. And you know what? I'm sure this movie is stealing some tropes, too. The Dream of the Dead or Dying Woman... The big hero speeches, the giant hero sword, the sort of moral incorruptibility of the main characters. And to their credit, whether it's Mel Gibson here, or Russell Crowe in Gladiator, um, or uh, Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, they still manage to make their characters pretty three-dimensional and still be sort of good guys that you can trust because they all make mistakes. But the mistakes don't uh, occur really for moral reasons for the most part. They're usually tactical miscalculations or, you know, trusting people too much. Um, in fact, yeah, they all, they all get burned for trusting people too much. All right, here's the beginning of the story between Wallace and the princess and you know when you're first watching the movie you're still so heartbroken by Murren um his dead wife he you who I really grew to you know to fall in love with I mean not like him but fall in love with as a character she represents everything that's good and natural and beautiful
But Sophie Marceau plays this so well. They're immediately attracted to each other. And what's great about this relationship is she totally falls for him. She's already fallen for him, basically. But when they do conceive together late in the movie, it's not totally clear that Wallace loves her. and He's definitely attracted to her and has some sort of feelings. But he, her, you know, she, he does not love her as unconditionally or, or, or whatever as, as she does him. Oh, this is great. I love this look right here. That lusty look from her, her assistant. What's her assistant's name again? Nicolette. But what's also great about Sophie Marceau is that she is able to not only deal with but embrace the fact that his love is conditional and is not full because he still loves Mirren. And she, she mentions Mirren. I think here that she knows about Mirren. Yeah, they've been keeping information from uh, from the princess. Although, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, the savage who speaks Latin and French. And look, she smart. This is where she's really falling for him. I mean, she's already attracted to him. I mean, how could you not if you were in her situation? But the fact that he's a civilized savage, a warrior poet, if you will, is irresistible to a woman like her in the cage that she's in. So as I was talking about, yep, there's Nicolette. Love her. Actually, I think Nicolette is really sexy. You know, I would, you know, I'm not gonna say I would take her over, over Sophie Marceau. They're both so beautiful. I just like, I like Nicolette's feistiness. She's so smart. You know, she's way less naive than the than the princess is. She's still, yeah, she's she wants to believe in in her king or. You know, similar to how um, uh, in Gladiator, Joaquin Phoenix's sister is always claiming to represent Joaquin Phoenix's interests as emperor, but is mostly trapped in a cage. Um, actually, in that situation, um, she has a child. Joaquin Phoenix is, uh, <laughs> is some dangerous feelings towards so she's even more trapped but it's the same idea I don't think she really believes that Longshanks wants peace but she has to put on a front now here's where she gains the upper hand a little bit Nicolette telling her about his dead wife but now she gets the real story so she had gotten Nicolette's version of the story but the real one while not, you know, overly dramatic, just hearing him deliver it is so, so heartbreaking. And here's where his manipulation starts of her, just like he did with the Bruce. 
You have a leader like this, if he tells you he believes in you or he sees something in you, sees strength, you just buy it. You know, I always say natural leaders, you know, lead without even trying, inspire without even trying. He is trying, but it's effortless. Very few men or women can pull this off. <laughs> They're just taking it all in. But Stephen and Hamish really make the movie. I mean, you know, it's not just comic relief. Uh, dramatically, they, as things get dark, they become even more important as things go south. Right, so this is one of those transfer of information things I'm always talking about. <laughs> Uer, you know, she says to the king that Wallace wants to fight him man to man, basically. We never hear Wallace say that in the tent, so either she's making that up to screw with the king, or we just weren't privy to that bit of the conversation. Ah, the conscripts from Ireland. And this is where the son looks like even more of an idiot. You know, they did a little misdirection with the audience as well, but since it was in front of other people, the king was sort of lying about wanting to pay off Wallace, just using it as a stalling tactic. It's all part of the brilliant manipulation. Devious does not even begin to describe him. Oh, here it is. What kind of man does he? And this is, this is what I was talking about. Yeah. She's trapped. She, what's she going to say? He's a brave man. <laughs> you may return to your embroidery. This is great. <laughs> this is the first bit of coughing as his tuberculosis starts setting in. It's quite bold of her to do this. It's interesting to think whether her conversation with Wallace had something to do with it or whether she would have done it anyways. Right, and this is the thing. It's like Commodus and, Gladi and Gladiator. He thinks that, you know, Having games with gladiators will be what will make the people love him rather than helping them, you know, in their poor, horrible, pathetic lives. Up oh, here comes Nicolette. <laughs> I must have made quite an impression. I didn't think you were in the tent that long. Oh, that's classic. And that's foreshadowing, actually. It's great. You're like, why is Amish coming? 
It, yeah, because she knows he speaks French. That's great. Look, she. Uh, uh, they love the wild men. This is so like in the show Vikings. There's a similar dynamic where the. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's too bad they can't be together. That'd be a great couple. You know, in Vikings, when they invade England, some of the ladies of England, noble ladies, who, you know, come from similar backgrounds to this, in fact, it takes place a couple hundred years before this in England, but it's the same sort of sticks up their ass, you know, hypocritical Christian, sexually repressed, etc., etc. And then they see these wild savages who are strong and brutal but honorable and muscular um and uh and honest in a way that you know they, they never experienced in their snake-filled politics and that women fall in love with the vikings it's it's pretty hilarious but understandable you know it's the it's the exotification thing Civilized people always... Uh, let's put it this way. It's not unusual for civilized people, men and women, to fall for the exotic other who, who looks different, who comes from a different life, what they see as maybe a simpler life, a less corrupted life, more natural one. Sort of the idea of the noble savage as we talk about. You know, we, we prop up the honorable Indian... Native American, even while slaughtering them. We can, and we will. Man, me and my buddy, uh, Ayal Ebel, um, I hope he's listening to this. Ayal, I should have mentioned you earlier. He's got a photographic memory for this sort of stuff. He, he can memorize raps like hearing him twice. But I watched this movie enough to mostly be able to keep up with them and, and uh, at camp and stuff, we'd put on little performances where we'd go through a long section of the dialogue. Um, yeah, I watched it so much, I actually developed a decent Scottish accent. But I might be misremembering. Um, and uh, I certainly don't have it anymore. Help. This is great. Help me. In the name of Christ, help yourselves. That's the thing. He believes in people. Even people who are too far gone. Now, Robert's not too far gone. He's just a puppet. But even the other nobles, he feels like enough passion and idealism, along with the victory, is enough. And this is the be and this is this is really the beginning of the end. I mean, we're probably about halfway through the Yeah, okay, we're two thirds two thirds of the movie. And this handshake right here is the last positive thing to happen in the movie. Yep, immediately his father says no. Right, this is the bigger problem, is that Robert may not be able to unite the clans even if he wanted to. He didn't want to tell Wallace that in that moment. He, you know, he wanted to... He wanted to do it. He wanted to do what Wallace said. 
Now, okay, my only problem with this movie, and I don't even have that big of a problem with it, because dramatically and filmically, it's executed so well. And it makes the redemption arc, uh, the redemption arc of Robert the Bruce, that much more compelling because of his level of betrayal. But it's one thing for his father to say, "No, I'm not letting you do this. We're going to betray Wallace to the king." It's another thing for you know the Bruce to be sitting beside the king, doing what the king says, and then taking out Wallace basically. Although then he, you know sort of saves him a little bit after uh, after Wallace is ready to give up. I like that they give him a helmet here. Oh, he does have face paint. They give him a helmet because it conveys a little more fear or at least a little bit less recklessness. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too far into it. But it's the only time in the movie that he wears it. So that's Robert the Bruce. Spoiler alert. It's a little on the nose. But more than being on the nose, it's just, uh, I can't imagine, uh, as much as Robert has been pushed around and manipulated so far by his father and the nobles, I just cannot imagine him agreeing to do this. It's great that the king leads this particular fight, um, shows how high the stakes are, but also shows his confidence and his absolute disregard for anyone in his military, as we will say. It was not smart to put the Irish in front, that's for sure. <laughs> he thought they were just going to be uh, fodder. But the Irish are running. Got to get some separation. That's so great. See, they hinted at this earlier, I think, a scene or two ago, where, you know, and that was a nice move with the sword off the back there, that's tough to do, where, um, uh, where Stephen said, I wouldn't worry about uh, the Irish, remember, it's my island. So you kind of see it coming, but it's still great. I guess it's great because the king doesn't see it coming, even if as the viewer, you're going, oh, I can't wait to see the king's face. And this is not surprising. The Irish hated the English as much as the Scots did. And, you know, fought just as hard and resisted their rule. And the slowdown. This is great. <laughs> great framing there with Stephen in front, but you can see William and Hamish. Yep, they're both, they're Celts. You know, I mean, the Irish and the Scots haven't always gotten along, I guess. I don't think they've really fought a lot in history. I'd have to look that up, but they're both Celtic. They're descendants of people who were around in the British Isles long before the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans, who would become the rulers of England. Um, they both have Viking blood as well, I believe, and that's where the red hair comes from. And uh, actually, Irish and Scottish music, while very similar to each other, obviously, uh, is also quite similar to uh, traditional Scandinavian folk music. 
they have more they really have more in common with the Vikings in some way than they do with the English. Actually, they have yeah, way more in common with the Vikings. The way they just flip people around is amazing. And, you know, they're always hitting someone. You know, even in some of the Lord of the Rings battles, there's some shots of just swinging down and, you know, there's no one really there. Oh, he's using a morning star. I mean, <laughs> you already love Campbell. He's already got an arrow in him and had his hand nicked. Oh, yeah, I gotta look to see if Campbell has his left hand. Now he's using a morning star, and he's gonna get his ass kicked. It's, morning star is a very unrealistic weapon, but it does look amazing. Look at it. Boom. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so his hand is taped up, and they have the shield sort of locked on his wrist, because I guess he lost his hand or most of it. All right, here's the treachery. Yeah, this is the other conceit. It would be that Wallace would trust these guys after everything he's seen. I guess that was the idea. Was it for... Uh, <laughs> was to have the same two nobles who helped him win the first battle. Because while he distrusts all the nobles, maybe he distrusts these the least. Right, uh, that's right. So the Bruce does speak briefly there. But you can't really tell. This is great. And this is the first time we see an English commander of any sort show concern for their own troops. Right, he's very, he's hesitant to shoot their own people, but this is actually very effective. It's true. England has way more soldiers, and his main goal is to kill the bulk of Wallace's people, and hopefully Wallace. He almost gets him here, and we'll get him later. And it's interesting that the archers would shoot their own guys, too. I mean... Oh, no. I hate when that guy dies. Also, that guy... And that guy from the beginning, he dies. Like, all this side. Other than sort of the big four. Oh, man. And that's where... That's where Campbell dies. So, yeah. So, you know, the main aide-de-camp or... Hamish, his father Campbell, who just got hit there with the axe, who had the Morning Star, and Stephen, the crazy Irish guy. But then you had a bunch of other guys from the beginning of the movie who joined early on or were from the village, like the guy with the black hair and the scars who just got killed, whose wife was raped from the Prima Nocta thing. They all die. They had to do it. They, I mean, you know, this movie in 20 minutes has completely flipped. And it's because of the treachery of the nobles and of the Bruces. And you couldn't kill Wallace yet, and you couldn't kill Hamish and Stephen. But you couldn't just lose the battle. You needed some of the, their top warriors and his closest friends and confidants to die. Sorry, this makes no sense. So, the king sort of rides away slowly, which would give Wallace a chance to catch them. The king was probably just cocky, so that's fine. But they order the Bruce to take down Wallace to show his loyalty to the king. 
It doesn't really make sense, because he goes right at Wallace and knocks him off the horse. But then decides that he, he doesn't want Wallace to be captured. But I hold this against the movie not at all because the long extended look on Wallace's face when he sees it's Robert the Bruce, who's the one who betrayed him, the Judas moment, and all the conflicting emotions on Wallace's face that Mel Gibson does so well is worth the whole thing. It's worth it. It sells the whole, it sells everything. It sells the fact that Wallace will never fully have his idea. Oh, I love that the lance is broken. Wallace will never have his true idealism back. He's just fighting with rage after this. But it also begins, you know, the redemption arc of the Bruce. And this is not the last time he'll, be- this is the last time he betrays Wallace intentionally. But his father tricks him into betraying him later. So this is the beginning of him, you know, wanting to become a man, not just a puppet, not just a boy. He'll eventually become the king, and sadly, it takes the capture and death of Wallace for him to gain the strength to do so. Um, There's a big time jump in this movie. Or I I should say... I should say that between now and when William Wallace is captured in real life, it's like five to seven years. This is the 12, let's see, this is Falkirk, so this is 1298, so he's captured in August of 1305, um, and then killed and beheaded and quartered like they talk about in the movie. But yeah, that just whole look on his face and giving up. And this this is where the Bruce turns for good. He says, oh my God. You know, to him, Wallace is a superhero. You know, Wallace is everything he wants to be but isn't. And for Wallace to give up, it's like, even though I just betrayed this guy, I can't have this happen on my watch. I totally fucked up. Steven, this is great, the look Steven gives him because... And this is why the movie's so brilliant, is there's been no direct conversation between Steven and the Bruce, but they've seen each other numerous times. He knows who the Bruce is, the Bruce knows who he is, and you know they've been involved in spats at the council in Edinburgh. Oh, this is great. Yeah, this is... <laughs> this is what ultimately gives Bruce a, a last chance with Wallace, but it's also what ends up leading to Wallace's betrayal. Here's the horrors of war. Campbell, he already got hit by an arrow in the initial battle. It's Sterling, his hand got chopped off. Now he got an axe to the belly. Only so much an old man can take. It's a heartbreaking father-son scene. 
You know, anyone who's close with their dad. I know me and my dad were both tearing up at this one. We saw it together in, together in the theater. I haven't really talked about that. I mean, you know, I was 13, very angry, very angsty. I was listening to Nirvana and shit. I mean, it was that age where I just hated everybody, hated the world, didn't understand my place in the world, didn't believe in anything. You know, was raised somewhat Jewish, but was not a believer. Didn't see religion helping me. And, you know, was in the early phase of being a spiritual seeker before I realized what that meant. But movies like this, you know, I mean, I hate to say it's a spiritual experience. It's not in the sense of God. Um, but it is in the sense of, you know, giving you a type of idealism about what it means to be honorable and brave and fight for humanity against all odds. It's a classic tale that's been told in every culture and country throughout the years, but when you're a kid, you need this. And seeing this in the theater was just indescribable feeling. I'll never forget that first charge of the Battle of Sterling with the horses and seeing the spears. I mean, I had never seen anything like it. And all these years later, it still looks amazing. And this is, right, this was important to show. Because Bruce hasn't been on the battlefield. And his first real time it was the first time that he's really on a major battlefield in a major battle. When he betrayed the person he respected the most, did what he shouldn't have done, and this is what happened. And this would have happened anyways, but at least it would have meant something if they had won and defeated the king. He would have been he would have been king. Yeah, the father's complete indifference towards his son's feelings. It should be noted that um, Wallace was actually one of two major... Uh, figures, leaders of the rebellion. Another was named Andrew Moray. Um, I won't go into Andrew Moray, but he was as important as Wallace. You can wiki him. His last name, M-O-R-A-Y, Andrew Moray. So, in the real story, the loss at Falkirk, the big battle we just saw, this is heartbreaking from Bruce. This is when you finally are on Bruce's side, which makes the final betrayal by his father even more horrifying. I don't want to lose hearts. I want to believe. As he does. And this is what I'm talking about with the spiritual redemption, you know, or just feeling, experience of this movie is that I'm with Bruce and that's the brilliance of the character 
you know, <laughs> you want to think you're Wallace, but so few people could really be Wallace. But the best we can do is sort of be the Bruce. We're trying to do the right thing, and but the the world and the order of things just keeps making us make bad decisions that we don't even want to make, and you know, which makes Bruce's redemption at the very, very end so affecting. You know, I felt like him. Not that I had betrayed someone, but this is a great revenge sequence here. Um, totally gratuitous. Also with a morning star. But I was with Bruce at that age. I, I wanted to believe in something. I needed something to believe in. And while, I, you know, the movie was so far gone from my own reality, I couldn't believe in anything specific in the movie. It did give me the notion that we create meaning and we create belief for ourselves. Which is hard to understand when you're that age. That looked pretty good. Oh yeah, this is where he knocks over four guys with the butt of his horse. I don't know why he doesn't just jump out. I guess he figures maybe he can. Yeah, oh, uh, there's no way he would have scouted out the water beforehand. They do this just for the image of the horse. I'm fine with it. I would have done it differently. I would have had him be more like an assassin. Minus the horse. And it's just another dead horse. And they actually show you the horse floating. Oh, man. So anyway, so after the, the loss of Falkirk in real life, uh, Wallace actually resigns his commission as Guardian of Scotland that we saw he was given earlier. And uh and hands it over to the Bruce and to uh um some other guy named John Coleman or something. Who who was the Balliol? So they have it right. It's the Bruce's and the Balliols. Like that's that was the main conflict. This is great, the blood on the bread. So yeah, so there's a time jump. So the Falkirk battle's in 1298, and when we see Wallace get captured in a little bit, it will be uh, in the real timeline, 1305, and then the final war with Robert the Bruce is until 1314, although he's he became, you know, king. Bruce became the king in 1306, but, you know, there, with the conflicts with England not resolved, he had to fight a lot. And, uh, you know, he fought like eight years before the Battle of Bannockburn, which in the movie they correctly say is in 1314 where he defeats a much larger army um, under Edward II, which confirmed the independent Scottish monarchy. So, you know, I understand why they just merged that whole, like, eight-year time period. Had that be the first time he fought the English army, because you need that great line. You know, you have bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. But... Would have been cool also to see 
Robert the Bruce, you know, kicking ass before, before that actually happened in order to gain his own throne militarily as opposed to just being a politician, which is what we see mostly here. Yeah, the, the, the tuberculosis is really starting to kick in here. The coughing is hard to watch, hard to listen to. The actor does a great job of making it very convincing um, without it. It's hard to listen to, but it, it could have been a lot worse. Oh, there's Nicolette. You gotta love Nicolette. She's great. She's on top of everything. And now they're talking about, you know, letting the princess be killed. As part of his plan, try and get France on his side to beat the Scots. Not clear why he needs France at this point after that destruction at Falkirk. It looks looks a little too much like an assassination plot. They wouldn't even need the the queen, uh, the princess for this one. But still, it's fun to watch burning these fuckers alive. Burn, baby, burn. But yeah, I mean, you know, the guerrilla tactics were a big part of the Scots fighting. Even before any of this happened and following this, when they had to fight again. Um, you know, Robert the Bruce, um, as I was mentioning, when he sort of took over the fight and sort of the decade following Wallace's fall and eventual capture in order to get the crown of Scotland to be fully independent, utilized a lot of guerrilla warfare tactics. Yeah, so this is the, this is the, you know, she so wants to sleep with him. She just wants one time to have sex with a, a great man. Not a brute, or, you know, someone who's not interested in her sexually. And he goes along with that. I wonder if pregnancy, if impregnating her was part of the plan. It does feel like he's using her here, which I actually like. It isn't one of these, he's now fallen for her and forgotten about Marin. She sells us so well. It's the breathing. It's like Liv Tyler. You know. Just those breaths right there. It just sells the whole thing. Look at her. 
I mean, there's got to be some level of revenge plotting here. He clearly cares for another hilarious Mel Gibson scene. It's just because Mel Gibson, with his long hair and big chest, I'm glad they don't do it along. See, that's, that's perfect. You know they have sex. They kiss, they're a little naked, boom. It's very romantic, it's not lusty, and they clearly have feelings for each other. But, yeah, at some level, he must be loving this. And his hatred for the king and the king's son. Yeah, I'm, uh, who knows if he's even aware about the king's son. Who's Edward II, I, I guess. I don't I can't remember. You know, he doesn't really care about the politics. He just knows that Longshanks is a horrible person, and she's kind of a good guy that's stuck under this horrible person. It's an interesting uh it's an interesting vibe from here till the end because you know everyone's dying, King's dying, Bruce's father is dying. Wallace's cause seems to be dying. She's happy. She finally got laid. Got laid by Mel Gibson. Not too bad. I'd still take Marin, but it's a close one. I just love Marin's smile. She's such a great smile. I love that this guy has the balls. They should just... God... Right, and so this is sort of the breaking of the fellowship, if you will. Yep, this guy's a snake up until the end. Right, like somehow this is a, a pledge from Robert the Bruce that he can't trust. <laughs> oh, man. Right, and this is this is everything. They're both right. It is a trap, but Stephen is also right that if Bruce wanted him dead, he would have killed him. It's It's, you know, Bruce is a tool here as well. Couldn't agree on the color of shite. It's a trap or you're blind. Yeah, I still got a little Scottish going on there. Yeah, and Wallace is right too. We can't do this alone. We need the normals. We don't have enough men. It's a great line. You know what happens if we don't have to do if we don't do it? Nothing. Nothing happens. Yeah, he says he doesn't want to be a martyr, but that is exactly when he becomes. Yeah, Hamish is Hamish is mad at this point. I think a lot because of his father. He's losing a little hope. Right? Hamish is showing some lack of faith that, you know, he believed that they could fight the English successfully, but that true freedom would never really happen. 
And then he's just as mean about Murren, and, you know, Wallace is just honest about his dad, but... Hamish is a great warrior, great guy, but... <laughs> Jesus. I know. The the brothers are fighting. The uh, the, the cousin or whatever. That's a save. Save them. Steven. That's good Steven didn't go. He'd be dead too. He knows this great because that look right there, that nod. Yeah, sure, I'll see you again. Steven's not so sure. Yeah, sooner rather than later, I hope. His... <laughs> His talking to God thing could be so stupid and corny, but he's that actor is amazing. He just nails it from minute one. Um, that's a classic case of you know an extreme type of behavior, but if you sell it at the very beginning of your intro, which he does in that first scene where he says, "If I join you, can I kill Englishmen?" Um, he just sells the whole thing. I love Steven. God, Bruce is like a little kid. He's so excited. He thinks he's going to atone for his mistakes. This is, yeah. I don't know why Wallace thought this was a good idea. And Wallace still believes in him. It's like he could see it in Bruce's eyes on the battlefield when Bruce betrayed him. He could see Robert. Oh, this is great. The way they shoot this. Robert, living in Edinburgh, knows something's wrong. There's some people there that don't belong there. Yep, you can see the, the English armor underneath. Yeah, this is just brutal. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, when you see this for the first time, you kind of see that this might be coming. Um, I guess the only upside is that Robert the Bruce was not responsible for this, did not want this to happen. And this will motivate him to forswear his father and, and fight for his, his kingdom and not just get his kingship through bribes and titles and deeds and promises and money. Right, and so, you know, the father is a little right, only in the sense that, well, and he reveals this information, assuming he's being honest about this, that Robert will now, will now be king because they gave up Wallace. And that's the whole idea in the final scene, the Battle of Falkirk, is that in the real world, what's happening right now with Wallace being captured... It happens like eight years before the final battle where the Bruce leads the army. Here they push it together, which I'm totally fine with. In fact, I, you know, I'm amazed they even added the date 1314 at the end of the movie because anyone who's following the dates would know that that would be a huge time jump. I hate to die with you. That's great. Yeah, I mean, one, I love how horrible they make the church look, as always. 
Oh, man. Yeah, it's interesting that a, a criminal trial is essentially being conducted by cardinals and bishops. Look at these guys. Overfed. Never see the light of day. Never have to lift a thing in their lives. Yeah, I think Robert the Bruce, I mean, you have him grow up in William Wallace's village. Yeah, or, or a similar circumstance. And, uh... You know, he's probably a brave warrior, but his dad's a snake and a manipulator. I like this. She finally asserts herself. Once the king stops being able to talk, basically, she's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, the son is too much of a weakling to even think about harming her and screwing things up even worse with France. The son doesn't even want to rule. The guard acknowledges the son's a weakling. Too bad. And another, uh, another universe. He could be king and she could be queen. He'd be a terrible politician, though. Not that he'd be, like, a bad king in terms of towards his people. He'd be great towards his people, but... As we've seen, he has no understanding of how politics works, and that's why he's here in the first place. So, you know, most of the rest of this movie is just the torture of William Wallace, and it seemed gratuitous even at the time, but with each Mel Gibson, uh, with each Mel Gibson movie following it, you know, especially uh, the... Uh, Passion of the Christ, where it's just pure torture. He has this weird Catholic medieval thing about him, which makes him so convincing in this role. But Mel Gibson as a person is a pretty conservative Christian. Comes from kind of a racist Australian Christian background. Not every man really lives. Amazing script. Can't believe it didn't get best screenplay. Maybe it did. Did get best picture and best director. Actually, I'm surprised he didn't get best actor. I wonder who won best actor in '95. Right, this is the whole. He doesn't want to be drugged because he thinks he's more likely to to give in. It seems like he'd be less likely to give in or to scream if he was feeling less pain. But he feels like it's a like it's a compromise that he doesn't want to make any compromises in his final moments. I don't know how he keeps this in his mouth because it's an open mouth cast. Look at it; he's like gargling it in his cheek or something. And then wouldn't she taste it? Maybe she wants it. I bet she needs it too. I like that she just leaves. That's what I would do. I just, I couldn't look, I wouldn't be able to look at him. This is one of the great all-time scenes. Oh my god, I love this from the beginning to the end. Here 
her little crownlet or whatever it's called is it's so beautiful and so pretty. I mean, she has to know there's no way he's going to let this guy live. But she has to try, or she feels like she has to try. But he can't see. So this whole scene is set up because he can't speak anymore. And it's her realization that he can't speak anymore that emboldens her to say the thing she's about to say. And the thing is, yeah, exactly. Right, she doesn't hate him because he's gay or a bad husband. She hates him because he's just a weak-willed, pathetic, you know, coward. With no regard for anyone but himself, in that he follows after his father, even though they're different in almost every other way. The way she drops her little... I mean... Sophie Marceau here. I wonder if she was nominated. She's so good in this movie. Death comes to us all. And the way she goes to the other side, away from Edward II. And, and the the volume of her voice. Yes, this is a little unrealistic. But the volume of her voice, the whisper, and how far... Prince is away is the perfect distance that this actually could work, especially because he does only well, starting to approach, but it's too late. She's already told him. So it's pretty brilliant. I'd have to. I'll have to look up how this works. I, I, you know, most of what I've studied and I did a little prep work to re refresh myself for this commentary is on the William Wallace side, the Scottish side. Uh, dwarves fighting each other. Yet another horror of medieval England. Not that they're dwarves or little people, but that they're forced to fight each other for people's entertainment. But yeah, the idea is King dies She's pregnant with Wallace's son, and then somehow, you know, maneuvers the killing of the prince, who will be King Edward II, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, pulling out the rope as like the entrails. It's, it's just so well executed. So yeah, so the idea that, you know, basically William Wallace's son is going to sit on the throne, I don't think there's any historical veracity to that whatsoever. But it's a great idea, and you need some kind of recompense for all the suffering we've been through and we're about to go through. This is excessive suffering, but it is based on historical reality. And so in that sense, I'm okay with it. They also mostly just show his face. I mean, when they're stretching him, you can see it. But when they're using the claws and the hooks and those really horrible-looking torture devices, they mostly stay on his face suffering. It's an interesting choice for them to hate him. It shows that the king was not wrong about, you know, the people loving him more for taking down Wallace. I suppose they could have relatives in the north who were killed, but it's certainly the opposite of Gladiator, where, you know, I mean, Comicus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, a terrible evil emperor, you know, throws 150 days of gladiatorial games 
in honor of himself, basically, even though he claims it's in honor of his dead father, who he kills to become emperor. Um, and what happens? But his great rival, who his father loved far more than him, Maximus, the general of the armies, is alive and has won the heart of all the people of Rome to the point where at the end of Gladiator, when the king is fighting, uh, or I'm sorry, when the emperor, uh, Comicus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is fighting uh, Maximus, uh, Russell Crowe, is fighting him one-on-one. Uh, now, he'd already stabbed Russell Crowe in the, ch- in the back, literally, in order to make it an easier fight for him, but Russell Crowe still wins. And, you know, there's a part where Maximus knocks the emperor's sword out of the hands. And the emperor calls for his right-hand man to give him his sword, and he doesn't. It's a, it's a big twist at the end. Oh, little boy. That, oh, boy. Um, and so the, uh, the... And then his, you know, his personal guard tells the rest of the imperial guards, sheathe your swords. Basically acknowledging that everyone had been sort of waiting for the moment to take down the emperor, especially once they found out that Maximus was alive. Because it was well known that Maximus was loved by his soldiers, but more so loved by the former emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who everybody loved. And, uh, and then, of course, Maximus kills the emperor, Comicus, with Comicus's own knife. Restores power to the Senate just before he dies. Here are the people not so much in favor of the uh, the person who their king says is the big bad guy. Now, I think after all the suffering goes on for another God knows how long, the crowd cries for mercy. Yeah, interesting to think that he would still have the uh, Marin's cloth. Not much to say here. I guess maybe I'll do a quick wrap-up. Um, you know, there's there's so little to criticize about this movie. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the best commentaries, there's at least a few things to criticize. This movie's pretty flawless. It's it's so classic. It was an instant classic. I was shocked that the, it didn't actually make a ton of money in the theater initially. Um, it basically made back its budget domestically and then made some more money abroad. Uh, partially it was rated R, although in the 90s people were still seeing rated R movies. And partially because of just the brutality of it and because it was three hours. But then again, you've Return of the King in 2003, 
um, is three and a half hours and makes a billion dollars. It was rated PG-13. Not clear when Braveheart became Braveheart in terms of how famous it was. I do know a lot of people that haven't seen it, actually. I think sort of Mel Gibson's fall from grace uh, a few years after this didn't help the cause, but it's on TV all the time. It's on Netflix. I'm watching it on Netflix. Part of why I'm doing the commentary is because you guys can actually watch this on Netflix and listen to the commentary. You know, Jesus on the cross thing, it's... I mean, this is Christianity. They don't need to go out of their way to bring in Christian symbolism. This is how... This is the brutality of of the church in the Middle Ages in England. See, here it is. Yeah, they're hitting him with... They're they're pulling at his, his organs with a claw... They just show him, though, which is smart. Even with all the blood and gore in the movie, you just couldn't show that. I guess you could, but... eh, You know, it it would look unrealistic to a certain degree to just show his stomach open. Oh, there's his two buddies. Also unrealistic, but you kind of have them there. Right, here they cry mercy. Yep. Maximus the Merciful, also a theme in Gladiator. Comicus wants to be merciful, but he only is able to do the other things. Yeah, I mean, the king as a villain in this... It's pretty, you know, two-dimensional, I guess. But the actor is so fabulous and the writing is so great that, you know, it's such a compelling villain. Yeah, they want him to say it. The prisoner wishes to say a word. Oh, there it is. I got the word. I got it right. Yay. Like I said, I remember all this shit. What's interesting is, even after he screams freedom here in a minute, they show him mercy. Yeah, I mean... (sighs) Right, they're going, oh my god, he's about to get way more tortured. Now, there's two ways of interpreting it. There could be a lot more torturing going on now. And that they do sort of a time jump. Uh, but they... Uh, yeah, the Cardinal is, is... this is That's what's so interesting. And in the movie, it's great. I mean, Cardinal is obviously a terrible guy, but... He has to respect this guy's spirit and this guy's will. He sees his friends, which is great. But Murren's right behind them. Yeah, Gladiator really stole a lot from this movie. Um, I'm sorry, Ridley Scott. I I love Gladiator, but, you know, it was just... (sighs) The whole thing with the dead wife. I know a lot of these things are tropes, but... People seem to love Gladiator more than Braveheart. I think it's just because of the, the 
the gladiator fighting, and that's the irony, of course, of gladiator, is that it's there she is. I like they don't show it hitting him. It's just slow mo. She's waiting for him, and then pshha, perfect. I mean, as torture goes, it's pretty tasteful. There it is, Battle of Falkirk. Or no, Battle of, uh, whatever the hell it's called, 1314. But yeah, the, ir- the irony of Gladiator is that it's, you know, it's satirizing the mob's obsession with violence. And then what happens? Our, our current mob is in love with the violence. Ridley Scott is great at that, actually, in his movies. There's numerous levels of his work. Like all great directors. Pretty interesting that Mel Gibson really never did anything else director-wise that I'm aware of. Uh, Banachburn, that's what it's called. (laughs) <laughs> your ass is about to be kissed by a king. You know, it's funny. I I, I used to have a lot of, of uh, friends from England f- via camp. It's hard to describe, but uh, there were a lot of English people uh, in my life growing up and um through through summer camp and. Uh, I forget what their response to this movie is. I'm sure they hated it. Or were just offended by the portrayal of England, which, you know, I mean, I think... If I were to criticize, I would say it romanticizes the Scots. I'm not sure that it exaggerates, you know, the the English royalty. We certainly don't see any English people who aren't royalty, which helps sell their sort of evilness and the lack of a human connection to the English people. I guess that would be my main complaint. I like how basic this says, you've bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. It's so well delivered by this actor, Robert the Bruce. <laughs> oh, they just kill that guy, a fucking noble traitor. Oh, and there's Murren's dad. I love that they bring him back. And these guys are here, not thinking that they're going to fight, that they're here to, you know, take the English approval of Robert's kingship rather than, you know, fight for it and take it themselves. This is great. Now, the chances of this actually landing point out are extremely low. Um, Yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, and they have those other two guys from uh, Sterling, the, the Doubting Thomases. Now they're believers. Yeah, it's it's a funny ending because we've seen so many battles, and so it's totally fine that we don't see the actual fighting here. But uh, it would have been excessive. It's interesting. You know, Bruce has been narrating the whole movie, Robert the Bruce. At the end, it's Mel Gibson. 
I can understand why he said it in his delivery about warrior poets fighting like Scotsmen and won their freedom. It is great. And this is the best way to end it on this shot with just the sword. It would have been interesting to have Robert the Bruce end it, but I get why they did it. And man, that three hours went by really fast. Um, well, I hope I made some good points. I already kind of forget what I talked about. Uh, early on, I think I may have had the sound on a little loud, so I apologize if that was distracting. I didn't notice that coming in. I'm very sensitive. Mike. But, you know, I mean, Braveheart was like that movie that, you know, it was like, it's like your favorite album, you know, that you have when you're a kid. You just watch it over and over and over again. And it has something for everyone, you know. I mean, not only is the romance aspects of the movie very well done and very tasteful, but, you know, the events of the movie completely hinge in a lot of ways on the two women in his life. The entire first half of the movie is his love for Marin, and then the, the, the revenge and rage that come with her death and how that launches the entire movement of the Scottish Rebellion. And the second half is all about Sophie Marceau as Princess Isabel and her lovely assistant Nicolette, who I love, um, plotting subtly against the king and becoming more and more emboldened to do so, both because of her disgust and distaste for the king and his people and her so-called husband, who won't even kiss her, also her love for, for Wallace. And, uh, you know, I think she realizes that William Wallace is sort of a dream, but... You know, her life has been so circumscribed by powerful men. He actually treats her with respect. And uh, even though maybe he's using her a little bit, she wants to be used by him. She's She, like the Bruce, is trapped in a circumstance where she's supposed to either hate this guy or, or plot against him, but his natural charisma just sucks her in the same way it sucks in the Bruce. And, uh, you know, in this retelling... Um, by 1314, it's very possible that, you know, that, that Princess Isabel is in charge and has had her kid, who is William Wallace's child, and now, um, and, and now Robert the Bruce is on the throne of Scotland. That would have been way too good to be true, but it was a nice touch in the movie amongst all that suffering. So, hope you enjoy the commentary. One of my all-time favorites. Um, sometimes we'll say it's my favorite. I'm always switching around favorite movies. It's just too hard. I mean, you know, depending on what mood you're in. But I can watch Braveheart in pretty much every mood. And uh, having not watched it for a number of years now, and now watching it kind of back-to-back, first time just watching, second time just commentary. It's very cool, very fun. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you next time. Bizzle out.